I noticed one kind of really random coincidence was preparing the episode, which is you're from Australia and you live in Norway. Mm-hmm. You know, and I've had 30 episodes or 30 guests on my podcast so far, and you're not the first person with a Norway-Australia connection. Really? Who's the other so, person? <laughs> Hannah Watkins. Um, I mean, she did kind of, you know, kind of standard academic work, did a PhD, did a postdoc, but now she works in Australia for the Behavioral Insights Unit, which I guess is like a nudge unit or kind of, you know, trying to get doctors to prescribe fewer antibiotics and that kind of stuff. And I think her middle name is Melgard. So it's Hannah Melgard Watkins. And uh, I think she's actually half Norwegian, half Australian or something. Oh, I don't know. I didn't ask okay. her. But uh, yeah, there can't be that many people. Like if you look at the amount of Australians and Norwegians there are, there can't be that many. Like the, the intersection of those well, two circles has to be. There's quite a few because I, I think a lot of the universities have these exchange agreements. And um, I actually, before I even knew anything about Norway, I was very close to actually doing an exchange year in my undergraduate in, in Norway. I didn't end up oh, doing it. Okay. Um, and um, there's a lot of Norwegians come to study in Australia. That's how I met my wife. She came to Australia to study, married her, moved back to Norway. And um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of back and forth within sort of medicine, within sort of ecology, in those sorts of areas. So yeah, there, there's quite a few um, Australian academics in Norway and, and vice versa, surprisingly. surprisingly <laughs> yeah, so. I thought, you know, because you basically can't be further away two countries on, on the globe, it's basically. basically the antipodes, yeah, more or less. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And do you know why? Is it just, I guess, I mean, Australia is always an, an interesting destination for exchange students yeah, from it, Europe. It, it's, always, it's, it's always seen as very exotic in Norway. Yeah, um, yeah. They, they love home and away here for some for some reason. And um, I, I, th- I think it's the same sort of thing. We see Norway, it's like as very exotic as well. So it's, uh, it's a nice little exchange. I guess also for Norwegians, there's a thing that you can escape Norwegian winters actually get some sunlight for half of a year well that's what they tell me they're like why did you why did you move here you're, you're, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're, you're missing you're missing the summers um but uh you know there's there's much there's much more to life than the weather and uh i think the weather the weather's fine but the the only hard bit is the sunlight where in winter <laughs> yeah you know sun goes down around three o'clock gets up around nine um, but other than that i think it's great yeah no i mean i've, I've never been to norway but i spent half a year in stockholm Okay. And, but yeah, I mean, the summer was beautiful. But oh, it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, I do wonder. They also they did mention like, yeah, when you have those like four hours of daylight in winter. Stuff. Yeah. Uh, anyway, actually, one of the reasons I also bring this up is because in I, I try to like listen to and look up as much about you as I could kind of before this interview. I don't know where this was exactly, but on some place you mentioned specifically that for your postdoc, you plan to move not only to Norway, but to Oslo. I think it was pretty specifically the way you described it there. That that was um, kind of, you know, often like, for example, I mean, I'm bringing this also up because I'm, I've got like a year and a bit left on my PhD. So kind of postdoc application, something I'm thinking about in general. And for me, it's very much a like, where do I want to go? I don't know. You know, anywhere, basically. But I'm just curious, how much harder did it make it knowing like there's one town that's not tiny, but not huge either? Uh, where you want to go and apply for stuff? I guess it was a lot harder and there was a lot of luck involved. The time that I was looking for a postdoc, almost out of nowhere, a position came up which was perfect for me. And um, I was just got extremely lucky. There's, there's, there's nothing, there's no other way to, to, to put it. I was either going to be happy staying in Australia and continue to, to, to do a postdoc in Australia, but the idea was if something pops up in Oslo, then I'll be keen uh, to move okay, there. Okay. And, um, and something did. 
and it was just um it was you know obviously I'd, I'd, I'd worked hard to get to the point where i was you know at least competitive for the position but at the same time um the fact that this particular position came up doing something which not that many people in the world would have the expertise to do was just it was it was absolutely wild i still i still look back i look back at my career and see so many of these almost sliding door moments going i got really lucky there uh, I remember getting into my PhD, at least within Australia, you generally need to be funded to do a PhD. If you get a very high mark within your um, uh, undergraduate uh, degree, then you'll get government funding to do to get support to do your PhD. Uh, otherwise, you won't get accepted. I applied for this scholarship that would, that would actually give me funding. And essentially, um, I got a letter saying, you didn't win. Um, but then a week later, <laughs> but, the, but then then a week later, I was told the first you were actually ranked second, and the person uh, the person okay, that won yeah, yeah. had pulled out. So congratulations! Like if that person didn't pull out, I wouldn't have done a PhD. There are so many of those situations where I think, gee, I just got so lucky, and I always wonder how, how for how long is my luck going to ride out? Um, <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll keep I'll keep riding that wave. Um, but um, yeah, getting that postdoc offer um, was just an incredible amount of luck. Yeah, yeah, I find this luck. That, I mean, as you said, like it's it's not like you were sitting around doing your PhD and just waiting. I was like, oh, well, there's a chance. Luckily, I can take it. You know, that it does take a lot of effort to oh, yeah. be able to be lucky. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I guess for me, it's kind of similar. You know, first year of the bachelor's, I really wanted to do research and science. And then in my second year, I had, I guess, a second year div and decided, uh, well, basically, if tuition fees in the UK hadn't been that high or I'd been from a rich family, I might have quit, uh, but basically I couldn't afford to spend a few thousand euros and then just say after two years, like, ah, oh, whatever, I'll stop. But then my, we had like, uh, like a tutor for like 10 people each or something like that, like just to kind of help people out for anything. He mentioned, oh yeah, there's these like summer internship kind of scholarships you can do to do some research, you earn a bit of money and... If anyone's interested, let me know. And I think I was the only one who said, I'll do it. And the main reason I did it is because I wanted to earn money so I could buy a camera. And <laughs> and then I did it. And I was like, this is amazing. Yeah, yeah. I think I'm going to do research. Yeah. And the only reason is, luckily, they didn't ask for grades in second year because mine were, were terrible. My good grades in first year were terrible in second year. So luckily, they only asked for that. And then, I mean, I guess I'm only still my PhD, but... That could have ended it very, very quickly yeah. if that hadn't happened. Oh, and also, like, there was only there were like three scholarship things we could apply for. We thought, but and one was what's the nice word discontinued that year, <laughs> and um, and there was one where the deadline was tomorrow. Oh, wow. And so I like literally had to drive across London to like hand them oh, <laughs> the application oh, and paper. But yeah, okay. So like, it wasn't okay. So like, yeah, like I guess you moved to Oslo it was somewhat specific and relied on some luck but it wasn't as um from the way i remembered it was really like i'm going to move to oslo and do and then well look th that that was what i really really wanted to happen um i could have probably found something within australia or within sydney there's a couple of institutions within sydney that would have been fine but the intention was i really really wanted to go overseas and um you know obviously uh, norway made a lot of sense because my wife's family lives around oslo and I thought, I want to make this happen. And I, I was really um, boxing myself in because there really is only one institution within Oslo that does my sort of stuff. I mean, there is a few yeah. other institutions that do other stuff that I maybe could have been applicable for, or maybe could have been more suited for. Um, but um, yeah, look, I just I just rolled the dice and the, opp the, op the opportunity came, which was, um, which, was, which was incredible. And I still pinch myself, honestly. Yeah. So, so it seems like Norway was also then, I mean, there was the connection through your wife, but it wasn't 
that seems also like coincidence about Norway because I guess you just said you wanted to go overseas. I mean, you would have made your life easy if you said, I'll go to London, for example, right? As an Aussie, <laughs> as an Aussie of course, yeah. But I mean, look, I've, I've always been fascinated fascinated by Norway. Well, I mean, also in terms of just the amount of labs that are there. Oh, just yeah. Just the opportunities. Much, right? much, much more opportunity. You wouldn't really have to have been lucky even. Yeah, I, I mean, there, there, there would have been, yeah, there would have been heaps of opportunities. But look, I've, I've just, um, I've always been fascinated by Norway. Um, before, before I moved there, I'd visited a number of times, um, with my wife. Um, so I thought this is, this is, uh, this is a, this is a really nice country and, um, do not regret a moment of doing it. I mean, of, of course, it's hard being away from family who, who are back in family and friends back in Australia, but, um, everything else, it's, it's, it's fantastic here. That's cool. Yeah. I mean, I've, I think I've only heard good stuff about Norway from people who moved there. Who knows? Maybe, maybe one day I'll see a position. The, the, the beer's too expensive. That's my only. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's my. That's my only complaint. I have to when someone goes, "Oh, drink that for some beers." I have to check the bank again. <laughs> Sorry, the, I'm only a research like a senior yeah. scientist. I'm not a professor. Yet. I'm not a professor. I, I can't. I can't. Ta- I can't take the hit. Or you have to. They have this thing. Um, it's called um the the, the literal translation is like salary beers. So like the Friday after salary usually gets paid everyone goes out for drinks because that's right, that's right, the one right. time of the month that everyone can afford <laughs> yeah, exactly. it it's um that uh yeah Other, i mean i'm sure if you you know work hard and save your money you can afford to be even on a different day oh no if you, yeah. if you really put your mind to <laughs> if you, it if you if you really want it <laughs> yeah yeah um anyway so i think this episode is going to be a, a one of very rough transitions from one topic to the next because synthetic data sets and podcasts there's basically no link uh so so i'd like to talk about the basically synthetic data sets and your prime in particular because yeah i think it's really interesting and i hadn't i don't think i've heard about this concept outside of i've probably heard about this on your podcast i'm assuming you've mentioned it and everything hurts so. at some point yeah and i don't think i would have heard about this other than that and maybe if i randomly come across your primer maybe could you maybe uh, for a minute or two kind of roughly describe what this is what the what synthetic data sets are why they're interesting and uh, yeah just as a kind of kind of get the ball rolling when it comes to synthetic data sets, this was a case of me trying to scratch my own, my own itch in terms of the problem of I want to share my data, but a lot of my data is very sensitive. You don't want to disclose a lot of this information for some of the populations that I'm working with. Um, I do a lot of work with autism, for instance, but there isn't that many people with autism within the Oslo area because there's only about a million people in Oslo. So it's very difficult to keep or maintain, uh, um, you know, participants want to keep their privacy in, in, in a lot of circumstances. So I think when a lot of people are talking about sharing data, they speak of it as if it's a very easy task. They're like, why don't you just share your data? Because and when, when you drill down to it, a lot of these people are working with like reaction time data, for instance, um, yeah. or, or visual perception in which sharing visual perception reaction time data, um, yeah, there, there really isn't any risks when it comes to disclosing that sort of data with, with your participants. And obviously, you know, within the biobehavioral sciences, we're experiencing a reproducibility crisis. And one of those ways that we can improve or increase the robustness of our results is by sharing our data sets. By sharing your data sets, um, other people can verify your work. Um, that, that's including peer reviewers, but also other people. But these open data sets can also be used to generate new hypotheses. As, as we know, collecting data can be expensive. 
very time consuming. Um, but if someone has already collected data set, which is addressing the sort of research questions that you're interested in and the data set and it's open, you can actually go in there and you can do some hypothesis generation and you can analyze the data and you can say this really, this cool, this really cool thing popped up. And then you can use that as a basis for uh, future hypothesis driven research. So there's a lot of benefits to open data, um, verification, but also generating new hypotheses. But we have these challenges within a lot of populations, particularly if you're working with clinical populations or vulnerable populations, and you have this tension between the utility of open data and also the need for disclosure protection. Open data has no disclosure protection, um, but no utility. Um, Sorry, but plenty of utility, but closed data has a lot of um, disclosure protection, but almost no utility. So synthetic data sets bridge those two different things because essentially with the synthetic data set, what you've got is you've got a data set which um, mimics the statistical properties of your original data set, yet no participant in your synthetic data set represents a real individual. So you can go through, say, say you have you know, 100 individuals and each of them you have 10 variables. It could be age, it could be some score on some sort of personality test or something, um, a whole bunch of demographics. Um, if you go through every single one of those participants with a synthetic data set, not one of those rows will represent a real person. And so what you can do is with that is if you're publishing a paper, then you can say outright, um, we couldn't share our data, our raw data, um, because of, um, of, of because of privacy, which I think is mm-hmm. reasonable in many circumstances. But yep. we've shared a synthetic data set which mimics the same statistical properties. You can run the analysis and you will get more or less the same, you'll get the same conclusions and more or less the same numbers. And as a benefit, um, you can actually do some exploratory analysis on this data as well. And this is a very handy way. And I think it it solves this problem of how can we share our data while protecting participant privacy? And this is something I was thinking about for my own research because of the vulnerable, vulnerable populations that I work with. And I just started doing some digging around and I discovered this because this is actually commonly done with census data. We're talking about like hundreds of thousands of people and the government obviously obviously wants to share this data so other researchers can can ask interesting questions in terms of demographics. But of course, you need to respect the privacy of participants and or people who have, who have taken the census. So this idea of synthetic data was originally came about in order to solve that problem, but only more recently has it been applied to um, to the biobehavioral sciences or to, to to medicine, and I'd only seen like two studies which have actually used this, and I thought I need to promote this. This is super interesting. And when it comes to, I like I every year I give myself a project. I give myself a meta science project. It's my summer meta science project. I'm a nerd. That's what I do for fun. And that particular year, I'm like I am going to learn this thing back to front to the point where I can write a tutorial paper on it, so that I can use this for my future work, um, but also so I can promote this to other people. And I always think when it comes to writing papers is that if you're helping other people scratch their rich, making them feel like the hero that like, this is super easy, I can do this myself. Those are the papers which get a lot of attention and uh, that, that, that are the most useful. And it's it's amazing, like with, with so much of this um, sort of meta science stuff, this is the stuff that, you know, granting agencies and when it comes to promotions, it doesn't matter as much. They don't really care about this sort of meta science stuff. But when it comes to the stuff that's having the real impact, getting the most attention, the most clicks, this is the stuff that actually gets the, mo- the most attention there. So I, I wrote this. Um, I wrote this paper for how to actually create your own synthetic data sets. And I think another benefit of doing this as well 
is that sometimes when you're reading a paper, it can be very difficult to follow the analysis of what people have done, unless they're doing something very basic. We ran some t-tests. I'm like, okay, that's fine. But some people have some very complicated analysis. And as much as they try and describe it, it's still very difficult to follow what they're doing. Some people may actually add an R script, which can help to see what they're doing, but still the R script can be difficult to read. But if you're sharing a synthetic data set, you can literally run the whole analysis with this script that they're sharing and so you can better understand what they're doing. So when it comes to this analysis, there, there are two things that you need to consider. It's not a matter of just pressing a button and it's automatically going to generate the synthetic data set. In, in some cases, it is actually that easy, but you need to verify that it does represent the original data. And so there are two things you need to consider, whether it has um, general utility, that is, does the data behave the same way in terms of what are the means and standard deviations of the variables? What are the relationships, relationships between variables? You want to make sure that those things are behaving roughly similar. And that's like a thing you have to test manually. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. This, this this is part of the synthpop package, which is what the tutorial is about. So when you're running it, you want to test, does it have good general utility? Do these data sets roughly behave the same? The next thing is testing specific utility in that do the analyses that I run in the original data set mimic the synthetic data set? And you can actually report, there are statistics that you can report. So you can actually say, yep, these things are essentially the same or, or, or very similar. And once you have those two things, then you can be very, very confident that one, the data, the synthetic data set can reproduce the same results as the original data set. And if you have strong general utility, that's also a really good thing for data exploration, because you can be fairly confident that if someone else is um, having, having a play around with your data, they're going to get roughly the same conclusions as if they're playing with the real data. But the benefit here is if someone does that, then they can say, hey, I played with your synthetic data set. I got this result. Can you run this script on the real data just to verify that it's the same thing? And it's and it makes it a lot easier to actually do that sort of exploratory stuff. So yeah, there's a ton of benefits here. And um, it's really encouraging to see a lot of people beginning to do this within their, within their papers. I set up my Google Scholar alerts for when people are citing my stuff. And one of the most exciting alerts is to get someone who's used this in their own research because I'm like, great, that's one more paper where someone's um, data can be can be verified and someone can actually share their data so other can other people can run um, exploratory analysis on the data. I guess it's interesting, right? Like every time you get an alert for that one, that means there's an open data set that probably wouldn't have been open before. Yeah, I, lo- well, I love yeah. that. Yeah, I basically like to, you know, talk more about all the different strands you kind of mentioned in that um, introduction. Yeah, I find it like maybe to to with something you mentioned at the beginning. Like I I agree. Like sharing data always sounds very easy, and then even if you have a basic data set, I mean, in a sense, it is should be relatively easy. But I've noticed since I've started, I mean, basically I started with the intention of sharing data and code from the beginning of my PhD, but only once we came to the stage where we wanted to publish stuff did I realize that my code and data probably wasn't in a necessarily publishable format and then I had to you know write it better so it can be improved and um, uh, so it can be published and I, yeah I think that's it's an important point to say like sharing data isn't the easiest thing even if you have data that is in principle shareable like you know it doesn't have these clinical things um yeah, I think one thing that I uh, thought we could do is kind of use one study that I'm thinking about applying this to and then kind of using that to kind of see what some problems might be with it or yeah. where it works or doesn't work and that kind of stuff. So the study I'm uh, for, for which I basically read your article, I do fairly like basic decision-making, economic games and social interactions kind of stuff. 
not really the data where there's really any problems about privacy or anything like that. It's an anonymous data, of course, but there's no real problem there per se. But then we randomly kind of had the chance to collect data with prison inmates who were in a, uh, I mean, so this was uh, in or around Hamburg, where I started my PhD. Our lab kind of moved halfway through. And yeah, so we got the chance to to collect data in a, I don't know whether it's maximum or high security, whatever the levels are, but some of the some of the people who are there and who I've met are some some very bad boys, and they've done some very bad things. Um, I think including murder and child rape and all sorts of things. And the interesting measure here for us is this psychopathy measure, the PCLR score, um, which every um, I think every inmate gets. There. The problem is if you have a super high psychopathy score, it means you you know. Basically, uh, the definition is you're a psychopath beyond a certain point. And basically, if you know this person is this age and has probably done something heinous in or around Hamburg, you can probably more or less read the, like Google the news and figure out who it is, even in a city as big as Hamburg. So that's the kind of general thing where the, the data I have is pretty straightforward. It's just some binary decisions, corporate defects, some scales from zero to 100, that kind of stuff. Like it's a fairly basic uh, data set, but where, yeah, where I couldn't really share the original data set um, because I'd be afraid that some people would be identifiable by name uh, with just a quick Google search. Yeah, so that's kind of the, the the rough description. Maybe one quick question. I mean, you you mentioned that this was developed for uh, sensor data and that kind of stuff where you have enormous data sets and that kind of stuff. Does it make sense to do this also if you have 40 participants? I don't know exactly like how the, you know, how the inside of the, like kind of exactly what the algorithms are of what this uh, package uses. Um, but I'm just curious, is this something where sample size, there must be some sort of restriction, right? Like some lower or upper limit, well, more lower than upper limit, but. I'm not sure. Um, I've did some simulations testing, um, different sorts of sample sizes and I don't remember, I don't remember what my lower limit was, but even, even, even something with like 20 participants, it'll work fine. Um, the only limitation that I can think of in your scenario is if there is a single outlier. So, for instance, let's say you're working with a population and you, one person had a very, very high psychopathy score. Um, and then if there is a single outlier, then then it's it's possible to identify that individual. Um, although I would imagine within your sample, a number of your participants would have very, very high psychopathy scores. Actually, so the, the slightly surprising thing is, and I guess somewhat disappointing after we collect the data, is that the psychopathy scores aren't actually that high. Okay. Um, they are pretty normally distributed first, um, mm-hmm. so there isn't any crazy outlier. I mean, it's definitely more psychopathy than like the average population, but uh, yeah, we don't have like a, you know, <laughs> whatever, who are the famous psychopaths? I can't think of one right now, I'm blanking. But you know, we don't have someone who did something completely out insane. Um, so that should be too much problem. But for example, our data set is fairly small. So I think the entire data set is something like 38 people okay. and 24 of them, I think, did all tasks. Okay. Um, but that shouldn't be a problem then. Or- yeah. So I think, so I, I've, I've tested it with samples like that, like with 40 participants. And the, the two main things you have to watch out for is if there's a single outlier, um, that. So a single it- outlier means in, any relevant dimension or just the ones identifiable or uh ones that are identifiable so age is one as well so say if you're working with a, a population of uh, people in car, car accidents for instance and there's one person who, who's age 90 and you're working in a small town and you know that 90 year old that was in the car accident um the, the other thing to also consider is sometimes 
when you are running the synthetic data sets, by chance, it will happen to reproduce the same values as the real values. Um, this is more likely to happen when you have massive data sets. So if you have like a thousand participants, if you have a thousand participants and you have five variables that are limited, age, some psychopathy score, and um, the highest year of education, for instance, you are bound to have, it's just impossible. You can't create a synthetic data set, which isn't going to have somebody that's age 30 that has a high psychopathy score and who has a high school education. So in that case, although the data is scrambled, what's been recommended is to actually leave those people out. Because if somebody actually, even though even though it's very difficult to identify them, if they were to reread your study, and people who are interested in research tend to do that, then they might look in the data, going, "Hang on, that's me." And <laughs> and but you 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 promised me I wouldn't be identified. So yeah, in yeah. those cases, it's 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 possible. So it it really depends on the nature of the data as to whether it's going to happen. But as I mentioned in the primer, it's very important to run those diagnostics to actually see. Has any of the same data been matched? So does the synthetic data match the real data? What you can do is you can almost do, it's kind of like synthetic. So it's like p-hacking for synthetic data. You can set different, you can, you can set different seeds. For like randomization or. Yeah. And sometimes if you change your seeds around, then you can avoid this problem. Other times when you actually, when you're doing the synthetic data analysis, what can change how it's generated is what you set as your first variable. So sometimes if you set, if you change around what the first variable you put into the model, then it will change how many people are actually matched. So there's a few different things that you can do, but doing this as well as actually determining the general utility and the specific utility, it's also very important to do these additional diagnostics in which you actually check one, is there any big identifiable outliers? One thing that you can do with that is you can potentially do some binning. So rather rather than treating um, age as a continuous um, variable, then you can sort of say everyone above 80, for instance. Not ideal, but if you want to keep everyone in, then then you can do that. I guess it's also maybe important to, to just remember that this is about the data set you share, not about the analysis you do, right? You can, it's, you know, the binning here is only for sharing the data rather exactly. than for actually running an analysis, yeah. yeah. I think another consideration as well is a lot of people think, oh, I don't want to share my entire data set. That would be ideal, but I think as a bare minimum, if you can share the data set that's required in order to actually reproduce the analysis, you, you may have collected 20 variables but only reporting five. If you're sharing the five, that's enough. If you want to share the 20, that's also fine. Um, but yeah, those are the main considerations that you, want to take, that, they, that you want to take care of. How's the general utility? How's the specific utility? And am I maintaining the, um, the, the, the privacy of the participants? Um, so if you're working with a large data set, you know, typically with a large data set, you might see 1% of participants. Like I'm talking like 2,000 people. Of that, maybe like 1% to 2%. There's just no way around it they're going to be the same values, then one recommendation would be just to remove those participants. If by removing 1% of your data, you, you, you are changing the outcomes of your results, then I wouldn't, I wouldn't say your data is very robust to begin with. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so it's, it's very important to be upfront going, hey, here's a synthetic data. Uh, 1% were removed because they were matched case-wise. Um, however, the, res the results are the same. So it's, it's very important to emphasize that you're not aiming to get exactly the same um, numbers. It's just it's just not possible. But that's not the point. The point is, can you reproduce the overall analysis, and can people get roughly the same outcomes? 
And um, if it means you removing some participants for the sake of for the sake of participant privacy, then I would say then I would say go for it. But look, it's 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 hard to this is just speculation. Sometimes, like with the data sets that I'd used in the primer, these ones didn't have any matched. I don't think from memory. But it all depends on the type of data that you have. Um, if you have like reaction time data, you know, where, where things are from anywhere from sort of like 200 to 1,000 milliseconds, the chances of you having exactly the same thing are going to be very slim. But if you're working with some types of variables, then you're going to get matching. So these are some these, these are some considerations for when you're actually working with synthetic data sets. Yeah, I guess in relation to mine and then probably also other people's data, I guess some identifiable variables like age probably are at least potentially aren't actually that interesting for your analysis so for example in my case i don't really care about age actually so i could just have the psychopathy and the behavioral things and then okay there's someone with a psychopathy score in and around hamburg then it's yeah that, that, then you're fine like may, maybe you're reporting it in you, as your demographics um sometimes it might be relevant to include age within a model i don't know but for a lot of in a lot of circumstances you, you don't need to include it so so don't <laughs> or i don't need to include it in the shareable exactly the shared data set exactly. yeah i guess okay that's a good point yeah i never thought about that um okay but i have one so in a way i really like the idea and it sounds really cool but somehow i'm not entirely convinced it works maybe this is just because i haven't looked exactly under the hood of how it works or whatever but i probably have to ramble a bit to make this question but i hope i'll make my point and that is basically my question is kind of how close the relationship is between your actual data and the synthetic data you create because let's say i have 20 variables or something, right? And I want the relationship between all of them to be maintained. It seems to me that beyond a certain uh, like level of detail and specificity, there will be only one data set that will match it to that level of detail. Like if you really want to have, you know, I want the correlations between these variables or whatever to be like, you know, until like five uh, digits, you know, whatever, like, at some point, only one combination of numbers is going to fit that, and that's going to be your original data set. Um, I guess maybe the, the general logic I'm thinking about is, you might have heard of this, Grimm and Sprite, where <laughs> you know you you say like, okay, these numbers can only be created by this kind of combination of values. So I'm just curious, isn't... It just seems to me that if you have a large amount of variables, that at some point unless you are pretty vague in terms of how well how closely you want them to match that at some point yeah it will just it will let's say the more precise you want the relationships to match you will converge on your actual data set yeah exactly and this is why you, you always have to check this, this is one of those checks that you do within this check of general utility firstly you're looking at the frequencies of you're, you're sort of comparing you know how many males are there in the original and how many males and females are there in the synthetic but you're also um one other thing you do is you would run scatter plots to actually look at the relationship between um um uh, okay so so you do scatter plots and like uh, where it may fall down is if you're looking sort of at multi-level stuff, for instance. Yeah, for example, just anything more than like a correlation or something. Yeah, yeah, but but, but typically what you would do is within within these examples, you can run, um, you, you can fit a linear model with um, a range of coefficients and including interactions, and in that sense, you can actually see how closely do the coefficients and um, the, the variance of those coefficients match between the original and the synthetic data set. And in, in many examples, they match very closely. So that sort of demonstrates that um, within you, the synthetic data set still 
do maintain the relationships between variables. So it's one thing to actually say, okay, the means and the standard deviations for all the variables are very similar, but what it also does is it maintains the relationships between the variables. Now, it's important to actually check that this actually occurred, especially for your analyses of interest, which is why you do these tests of specific utility. Now, one thing for these particular tests to work, you need to fit it as a linear model. Um, One thing which blew my mind, which I can't believe I wasn't taught during undergrad, is that every single common statistical test is essentially a linear model. So if you're uh, if you're not if you're not already using linear models, you may need to convert your t-tests, for instance, into a linear model. And then um, within the synthpod package, then you can basically do those comparisons. You fit a linear model, and you can compare the linear model between the original data set and the synthetic data set. So what you're doing is you're just seeing how closely do the coefficients and the variance of the coefficients match up. And um, it runs a statistical test to actually show you how similar these things are. And you can even report the percentage. So there's like, you, you, you might say there's a 95% or there's a 93% overlap between the synthetic coefficient and the original coefficient. So I think one really important thing to stress is that sometimes it doesn't work just through the nature of the data. Yeah. Um, but I don't think it's necessarily necessarily a bad thing. You can be very upfront in your paper going, we attempted to, to, to create synthetic data. Um, the, 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 the results differ a little bit. However, we're including this in order, to reprodu- in, in order for interested people to reproduce the analysis. So someone can actually go through and, and, and rerun the analysis. You might get different results, but at least people will have a better understanding of what you actually did for your analysis. So these are important things to check. Uh, it's not it's not going to work for all sorts of data, but it, it works for a lot of types of data. Um, a few points related to what you just said is like one is that it seems to me also that just reproducing the summary statistics of your variables is to be honest with, with that when if you just if it does just did that, I didn't quite see what the point is because I thought like the main kind of advantage is that other people can do exploratory analysis on your data, and that really requires the relationship between variables to be intact, right? That's kind of the crucial well, thing I, there. I still think it can be interesting because that's one way of actually checking, like, is this data weird? For instance, um, by looking at that, and just even even by looking at the distribution of the data, you know, for, for instance, you might be very familiar with the type of measure, and you know that this measure always gives you a few outliers. But if someone I reports see. data set okay, okay. with no outliers, you can go, "That's a little bit strange." Um, so it just gives you, even looking at the distribution of the data, the, the means, the standard deviations, and the presence of outliers, just gives you a better idea without necessarily even running any analysis. So I still think that's better than nothing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a fair point. I mean, I guess this also relates to um, where I, I talked to Joe Hilgard about his uh, his Zhang affair and where he got data that was just a cube, like the, the, the just really weird looking data. Yeah. Where based on that, you basically say like, no one collected this data. This isn't yeah. Real. And and when you see the synthetic data, because it because it roughly approximates the real data, you can still see this is weird. This is weird. Data does not behave this way. So it's just, even even for that, it can be quite useful. Yeah. Uh, one thing that I probably should have mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, uh, I put links and uh, I put like references in the description and links to everything we talk about. And you mentioned this, you alluded to a blog post with uh, linear models. I put that in there too, in case people were wondering what that's oh, about. It's, it's, uh, oh, it's, it's, it's such a good blog post. <laughs> yeah, I haven't read it yet. I just, I saw it yesterday. I watched your 
uh, what's it called, like Riot Science or something like that. Oh, yep, yep, yep. Uh, yeah, there's something like a talk on synthetic data sets by you on there, and you mentioned that, and then I had to look it up, and <laughs> but uh, I haven't read it yet. It's really good. Uh, the, the, the other thing I want to mention is that um, when it comes to sharing data and sharing analyses, things like R, R is fantastic because it's accessible and anyone can, it's very easy to share scripts, but packages and R versions change over time. So right. something that you share now, it's it gets a, bit, a little bit depressing to think about, but something that you share now may be very difficult to do in 10 years time because all these things update. One thing I did yeah. with this paper was I shared a reproducible Docker image of my analysis, which basically- Docker meant, image is what? Yeah, so this is basically like, it's like a container, like it's a self-contained um, I'm probably explaining this very poorly. It's a self-contained file which allows you to rerun the analysis based on the environment which I saved it in. So when I wrote the paper, it was a particular R version and all the packages I used were a particular version. I put together this pack, this, this sort of self-contained bit of code, which means that in your browser, you can rerun the analysis and in 10 years time, it's going to behave exactly the same. So this is hosted on, on my GitHub. eLife also saves a copy in case my GitHub explodes, for instance. And then what it means is you click on this link, takes about sort of, you know, maybe a minute to load and it loads up RStudio, uh, RStudio server on the web and you can rerun it exactly how I did it on my computer. And it's going to, it's, it, it's, it's future proof essentially. And it's, it's a really nice thing that I'm looking at doing for, for, for more of my papers so that, you know, on top of sharing your code, which I think is important, um, it helps future proof your code as well and then this pops up in the browser you can see it, it recreates my um, environment you can see all the packages that i use all the files that are there and you can rerun all the analysis that's explained there yeah can we get maybe just a minute about that topic more because this is something i've heard about before but i don't really i mean to be fair, i don't use r so maybe that's maybe the first <laughs> reason why um, like if i use matlab maybe that's pretty straightforward you can you can do the same i think if you do it in octave you can do something similar but I guess I'm just curious, like for people who are using R, what are some maybe like educational resources or you can use or what are some good tools you use for doing that? Yeah, for this kind of archiving of the actual R version you're using. I used a package called Binder. Um, oh, like, that's what Binder's for. Okay. Yeah. No, is it called Binder? Or I've heard the name before, but I, no, you know, because I, I don't I, use R, I don't really I pay that to, close attention. I have to look back at that. Was it Binder? No, I used a hole punch. My bad. That's the package. So a hole punch, it basically does everything in the background for you. Um, you have to, you know, it doesn't take very long. It's only a few lines of script and it will do all the work for you and help you create this self-contained package. And that's what, that's what I did for this particular paper. It's not hard, but it's not easy. It took me a little bit of fiddling around, but uh, look, I'm, yeah, like an afternoon sort of thing, get, getting it all together and getting it ready. Um, but once it worked, it worked beautifully. Um, so Hole Punch is the name. And then the, what do you get out of this? Like a, a zip file that you can upload to GitHub or what exactly is the kind of date you get out? Yeah, How so, do you? So more or less the, these these files live on, on GitHub and then it's sort of run. Uh, I'm not. I'm not entirely sure how it, how, how it works to be honest, because it, it was all it was all very new to me. But the files the files live on GitHub, and then you you sort of run it from there. Um, but yeah, it's 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 run within 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 Binder, um, and then you can yeah you can see all your stuff there. But you can do this with R, you can do this with Python, um, you can do this with Octave as as far as I know as well. So it's quite it's quite flexible. It's code it, yeah language agnostic. Yeah, I might have to do this with Python soon. Uh, but actually, whilst we're talking about programming languages, 
One of the reasons I'm hesitant to use the Synthpop package is because I don't really use R. I have used R before, mm -hmm. but basically now all my analysis in MATLAB and in the future, especially for online data collection, I'll be using Python. I have to learn some JavaScript. I hate programming. It's the least favorite part of my job. I'm not really looking forward to <laughs> learning R so I can use this one package or make some nice figures. This is very straightforward compared to other packages. Um, if you're doing sort of basic synth pop, it's literally a few lines of code. Um, so compared to other packages, it's very straightforward to use. So I have no excuse. No excuse. And the the the, <laughs> the, the, the documentation, um, the documentation is um is 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 is, is very good. Um, and there's a lot of support online. But um, yeah, compared to other packages. It's very nicely written and it's relatively straightforward to use. So I would think that, um, yeah, even someone who's sort of got a basic familiarity with R will be able to use it, no problems. Oh, damn it. <laughs> no, really have no excuse. No yeah. <laughs> it's, but this is, you know, this is one of those things with, with, it, with you know, I'm all for open science and reproducibility and all this kind of stuff, but sometimes like, ah, oh, another thing to do. <laughs> but I think as well, um, something that a lot of people forget is if you're doing relatively straightforward analysis there are tools like jasp and jamovi in which you can do exactly the same thing in which you can share your um you can run your analysis and share your scripts and um, you can share your jasp and jamovi file and anyone can open that up and reproduce what you've done um but that's you know that's assuming you're doing not for uh, critical data or uh, not critical but what's the word confidential data uh no exactly so if, if you're if you're willing to share the data that is then then you can use that but yeah if you want to use synthpop then um i actually toyed around with the idea of of, of writing a shiny app for um for synthpop then i realized that there's potential privacy concerns because the shiny app has to be hosted somewhere and people are putting their confidential data into the shiny app right, right, right. so i was i was about halfway through making it and i'm like oh crap that's a that's a really bad problem <laughs> and I, I didn't i didn't know how to solve that so i sort of abandoned it um but using the package within r um if you're a beginner you can do it i mean to be fair i mean there's i guess there's like a a question that's always tricky like which programming language to learn because then it seems like r can do a lot of things that other things can't do I mean, one thing that to me sounds very interesting is this whole idea of Markdown, where it automatically, like, you know, you write, as far as I understand, you write your paper in R or whatever, and then it automatically puts the results of your variables in. So if you, you know, end up changing something about it, then the, it automatically changes the, the, you know, slightly changed output. That does sound really cool. And that alone is for me almost worth considering doing my analysis in R. It's, it's very cool. I've, I've played around with it and, um, it's, it's like magic. Cause like invariably you are going to, you know, reviewers going to suggest additional analyses. Um, you might want to do different analyses and it reduces the chances of you making an error because sometimes you're running your analysis and you're copy and pasting between your Word document or between your LaTeX document. Yep. And, um, you know, just, it's just human error, but doing it this way, it's, um, yeah, it's it's cool. It's very cool. I've played. I haven't actually. Uh, maybe I've done one paper like this, but it's um. Yeah. Oh, so you don't actually. I assumed you would just use this all the time. No. Like, look, I don't know. Like, I'm um, when it comes to writing stuff, I find it almost distracting because you have your R markdown, and then you have, and then just I'm always I write a sentence. I'm like, okay, I want to see how that renders. Press the button. It takes like three seconds to render, and it just gets it gets in the way of my writing. Uh, and also, my collaborators, a lot of my collaborators don't use R or they don't use LaTeX or, or whatever. Can't you like export it? As a uh, yeah, but it's, 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 it's a pain. So you, you can export it into Word. It, it doesn't always work. But then it seems like a pain to write it 
export it, get your collaborators to make the changes and then import it okay. back in again. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. one thing that I have been using um, for doing this is this service called Simul, S-I-M-U-L. It's like GitHub for your Word documents and it's super easy for you to actually share your Word documents. So you upload your document to Simul, to, 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 to Simul. I write it and then I invite my collaborators and then they they can access it. Um, and what you can do is people can work on it in real time and then you can actually version control everything. And then say you have three people working on it. Once they're finished working on it, you can then merge You can then merge those documents together. But the good thing is it doesn't actually create more work for your collaborators because all they're doing is opening the Word document, working on it as normal, and then saving it, and that's it. That's what I found has worked the best when working with collaborators. Sometimes if it's just a paper with me and a PhD student, we might just write it in Overleaf, for instance. Other, other times we just do it in Word. It just depends on, on who I'm working with. But um, when it comes to these bigger papers, when I've got like, you know, 15 co-authors, for instance, okay, yeah, yeah, like yeah. just, ah, oh, like I, I think some people are just like, it's very funny seeing people like, <laughs> you know, raise their noses, oh, you use Word, oh. I'm like, mate, like you, you obviously don't collaborate with people, m- many, many, many people who, because a lot of people just, just don't know how to use these other tools. And sometimes I feel um, like, oh, I, I was working with the LaTeX document yesterday and I just wanted to move a box to the bottom of the page and I was like 40 minutes in Googling and I'm like, oh, stuff this. Like if this is Word, you, you just move it. So look, there, 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 are, there, are, there are pros and cons. But I think I think some people are very sort of very, um, you know, like, like software hipsters when it comes to just design software. It's, it can be very frustrating. Yeah, no, I mean, that's – I I mean, I just literally – last week um, we published a preprint that had some mathematics in it, so I needed to use Overleaf or I don't know. Maybe I could have done it in Word, but it didn't seem like it was a good idea. And I, I did it on Overleaf, and you know, I love that you can really make it look the way you want it to look and put things there. And it's, I, I'm really happy with the way the preprint looks. But it might have been quicker to just write everything in Word and then copy and paste it over. Yeah. Um, because I think Word is still, despite all the criticisms, I think the best way to write something. Yeah. Like there's all these fancy tools you can use, but I think. I don't know. At least for the for the way I write something, having a folder on your desktop and a word document, like a few do- word documents, is usually for me by far the most efficient way of actually writing something. But I haven't written something with like fifteen collaborators yet, and just having like yeah, I've had some I've had some stuff where we were like two people were printing in parallel working on the same document, and that just was the most annoying thing ever. Um, well, of, of course, there's also Google Docs as a, as a way of collaborating as well, which. Um, which is ah oh, sometimes, it. but yeah, it's 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 not bad. I still just the way that track changes work. I still prefer Word, but um, you know, other documents that um with other people, I've I use Google Docs as well. So it's 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 a bit of a mix. But I, look, every six months it's always different. Like sometimes I'm like yeah, overly fall away. Other times I get frustrated with it, and then I'm back to Word. But now it really just comes down to who am I working with on this particular paper. If I know I'm going to send it to collaborators. Um, who aren't comfortable with LaTeX, then I'll just do it in Word. If it's just me in my lab, then I might do it. I, I might do it in Overleaf. It, it really just depends. Uh, how does the? Uh, I know Overleaf has this. Um, I mean, so I'm just using like the free version, and I used to basically to write it, and then I export it as PDF and sent it to my supervisor. But they do have like a collaborate function in there, right? Yeah. So you is can, that what you use? And if so, how well does it work? It, it works. I, I, I still think the track changing just works better in Word. Because um, if you have a lot of comments, it can get quite jumbled very quickly. Um, but of course, you can do the same sort of thing. You can, you can suggest edits. 
you can track changes, you can you can version control those edits and you can also write comments and then you can also have, uh, it's a nice feature, I don't even know if Word has this, but there's like a general chat feature. So as well as talking about the paper, like directly, uh, you know, about sections, and there's also a chat feature as well. So you have like, you have sort of discussions about the paper within the paper too. Um, so it's, yeah, it, it works well, but the only downside is once you start having like a lot of collaborators with a lot of comments, it can be a lot harder. Word does a pretty decent job when you've got like comments everywhere, um, but Overleaf yeah. can sometimes, yeah, get a little bit tricky to use. Um, it just depends on the project. Okay. I mean, I guess in some sense for me, it's pretty easy because most of the papers I do is I do the work and then we might have collaborators I help with one or another thing. Mm. Basically, I write the thing, which I guess makes it a lot easier to just yeah. write the thing because I can just do however I want it. And, um, yeah, just despite my, <laughs> uh, strong distaste of most Microsoft things. Word is actually pretty useful. I have it's, to admit, it's it pretty is good. still the best one. But Word Word Online, I think, is frustrating. Um, a lot I've of, never used that. Yeah. It's yeah. Um, it tries to be Google Docs in terms of its collaboration, but like, it's it just it's clunky. I don't know. I, I I'm I'm not a fan of of maybe it, like maybe it's changed recently, but um, it feels very beta, but beta ish how, how it works. Like cursors will just jump and move everywhere. Um, but normal Word. I don't know. It's just yeah. It's it's, e- it's it's easy to bash on Microsoft, but um, it, it, it and works. I will. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, we got through this via R. Okay, yeah. Somehow it's funny. Like I just assumed that I don't know why. It's it's really funny. I, in some one somewhere again, uh, you said that you actually. Can you confirm this? Is it true that you basically used SPSS for your entire PhD? Or uh, that you only started using R in your postdoc or programming? Yeah, or oh, yeah absolutely. I... Yeah, yeah. Okay. Like, right. Because just for context, I've been listening to your podcast since, I don't know, like episode 60 or something like that. Okay, nice. Sure. And for me, you know, you and James are these two people who are, you know, really into open science and reproducibility and all this stuff. So I just assumed you, like, I don't know, grew up coding or something like no, that. No, like, um, not at all. Look, look, James still uses Excel for a lot of his analysis. Yeah. Oh, really? I actually, <laughs> I, I found out, I'm not joking, about three months ago that Excel is basically more than just a spreadsheet. I thought it was just like a place where you could like put data. I didn't realize that you could actually like do stuff with it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's, 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 like, it's really powerful for in, in certain contexts. But yeah, look, I used SPSS because like I had heard of R during my PhD. I graduated in 2013. Um, and back then, like I, I did, I didn't know anyone using R. I, of course, I knew a few people, few people using um, MATLAB. And R was just this this thing that um, I'm like, why would you, why would you ever do code when you can just point and click? Point and click is so much <laughs> yeah. easier. But literally, uh, I had a one of my papers during my postdoc. I needed to do, um, I think, mixed linear models, and you couldn't do that in SPSS at the time. So I'm like, gee, I, I better learn this R. This I better learn this R thing. And then, um, well, that's good. You didn't go like, I'll just have a different experimental question then. <laughs> no, I, I just, I, I knew this is what I had to do. But the, th- the thing which really got me into R was meta analysis. Using the metaphor package within meta analysis was my gateway drug. Okay. Just briefly, I've, so I've never run a meta analysis. I, I think I always also assumed you did R and that kind of stuff very early on because you did meta analysis in your PhD, right? Um, I did, but I, I didn't. I didn't. Use, I used different software. Uh, okay, I thought you somehow you'd. Well, yeah, I don't know. I just yeah assumed you used R. 
Okay. So I I use point and click software, and the, the thing with this point and click software is like it's it's not incorrect. Like the the, the, yeah, the software yeah. gives you the the right numbers, but the flexibility that you get with R and the fact that you can actually share your analyses um, makes it a lot better. And the thing I love about meta analysis is that you are working on public data, so you have absolutely no excuse not to share your data. So whenever I'm reviewing a meta analysis and I'm like, I want to understand what this is doing, I always ask the reviewers, share your data. And they can never say no because it's they have no excuse. The only possible excuse you can have is if you're somehow working with doing a mega analysis, for instance, where you're doing sort of individual, you're, you're, you're doing a meta analysis based on individual data points. But the, major, the majority of meta analysis is done on publicly available summary statistics. So there's no excuse. So if you're doing this based on point, proprietary point-and-click software, you might share the data, but I still have very little idea of how you did your analysis because people are very bad at sharing their, their methods. So unless they did a run-of-the-mill meta-analysis with all the common defaults, and even those things can, can change from, from lab to lab, it's very difficult. But if you're using R as well as sharing the data, you can share your scripts and, and then it, it, it's much easier. But this, yeah, look... It, Doing and learning meta-analysis within R, it's like it's worth it alone. So if you're doing meta-analysis, it's absolutely worth learning it so you can do that. Because there's, of course, there's the, the metaphor package, which has like some of the best documentation out there. Um, but there's also other meta-analysis um, packages that you can use there. And um, yeah, it's, 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 it's totally worth it. But yeah, look, I, I only picked it up <laughs> during my postdoc. And also it was from a lot of frustration from licensing from SPSS. Like, you know, you, you, you own the thing because you're part of the institution, but then there's licensing problems. The software takes like five minutes to load. And through that kind of frustration, I'm like, well, you know, I'm paying you to, my institution's paying you for, for a license, but you don't want me to use your software. And it's, 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 it's with that, um, I went to R, but um, look, it's, there's, there's nothing wrong with SPSS. It's just, it's much more difficult to share um, and, and look, everyone's like, oh, the syntax, no one shares their syntax. You, 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 you almost never see it. Ah, um, but it, with R, it just makes it a lot easier. Um, but yeah, this, this, this is a, a sort of a, a recent thing that I've been getting into. And I think when it comes to open science and re- reproducibility, it, it's very important to stress that you don't need to adopt all these things all at once. There are so many things you need to get your head around. Open data, open scripts, preprints, pre-registration. And people think, oh, this is a lot of stuff and I can't learn it all for this paper. I don't know what to do. Just do one thing. For your next paper, go, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share my scripts. For your next paper, you're going to think about, okay, um, this is how I'm going to do my pre-registration. Bit by bit, if you're picking up these skills, um, it, that's that's totally fine rather than sort of thinking, I, I can't do all these things at once because it does. It's a valuable skill. And the great thing is seeing more and more job advertisements that are saying open science and reproducibility is valued. And it's valued because it takes time to learn these things and it takes time to learn these things. So you don't you shouldn't feel this pressure of, I need to do this every, all these things for the next paper. It's, it's difficult. Just do one thing at a time. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I've basically had to do all of this in my PhD. And I mean, there are other reasons why I guess some of my projects aren't published yet. But <laughs> some of them may be more related to me. But one reason is also that I spend a lot of time yeah, reading up on all this stuff. Uh, like why to visualize your data in all these different ways and not just use bar plots and, you know, like basic stuff like that. And there's like a million things like that. And I agree that you know, in the same way that it's very, it's a lot of fun to, to bash Word or to bash <laughs> ISPSS or whatever. 
yeah, that, that's maybe fun to do, but maybe not always the best way to actually get people to adopt it. Yeah, um, look, I, yeah. Sh- shame isn't a great motivator. You know, and <laughs> yeah. a lot of people are very discouraged. Um, they, they open up Twitter and they see people. Look, and I'm going to admit, I have been that person in the past to, who has sort of somewhat unfairly bashed SPSS. And in retrospect, I realized that is, that is not the best way to go. But the best way to go is actually pointing people to to resources and how to actually learn these things you know but but of course like it's just it makes it very difficult to share your data that that i'm not going to apologize for it makes it very difficult to to share your scripts if you don't have like what one person actually did for a paper i was, I was reviewing share their their syntax and i'm like i have to load svss i haven't done this in such a long time um because they're doing everything right but at the same time i i said i think i said in my review well you know I have the SPSS, but but a lot of readers don't. Um, so if you really want to make this more re- reproducible, then then really strongly consider doing this sort of thing in R or in JASP or in in, in Jamovi so other people can learn it. But um, yeah, look, it's just this snobbery with different software packages and the ways of doing things. As long as you're not making any errors, then then I think I, I think it's fine. But some software packages, you're going to be more likely to make the errors. So, yeah, it's important to make that distinction. And I guess it's also more of a long-term versus short-term thinking, right? I mean, I think, sure, it took me... I feel like I only really, after about one and a half years of my PhD, of really programming relatively frequently, that I actually started to feel comfortable with it. And uh, now I can, you know, do my analysis without thinking about it too much. Yeah. Obviously, I have to search stuff, but it's, it's now fairly easy. There's a startup cost for that, but then again... You know, now it's super easy to run analysis and show people what I did and change small things. And I think if anyone who wants to like stay in academia for at least a few years, <laughs> I think it's probably a worth inv- investment. It's a skill you need to learn. And even if you, I think it's also important to recognize that for a lot of people, academia isn't the way to go forever. And people want stuff in, in industry and in industry, um, Python especially is, is within data science is very well valued, um, R as well to, to a lesser extent. So picking up these skills is is going to make you more valuable um, outside, with both within academia, but also outside. And, um, you know, <laughs> there are still a lot of departments that are still teaching SPSS. Like I said, you're still going to get the same results, but more and more departments are switching across to R. And um, people sort of assume, oh, the students are going to hate this, but it's a massive assumption. I've seen survey after survey of students that are like, this is super cool and really and really actually enjoying um, um, enjoying learning how to do R. I have to admit that I think I kind of agree with the, let's say, intuition or assumption that students would hate it because I probably would have hated it. Because I think, I mean, you know, this is in part why I think also I'd spent so much time during my PhD in particular relearning stats and all that kind of stuff is because during my undergrad, I was like, well, is it significant? You know, is it below or above yeah. 0.5? Like, I don't care like about it. Like, just tell me what it is and then that's all I need to know. And only like now once I actually go like, yeah, but what do my results really mean? And like all this kind of, once you have to really think about it, then you go like, yeah, I think I have to learn stats properly. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I, I think I'm always also the bad example to extrapolate from because I think I'm just not someone who really likes sitting in class and doing what I'm told. <laughs> so maybe, I mean, yeah, we had this course we taught on the weekend. I was really surprised that the students were engaged. <laughs> it's like, wait, yeah. they actually like did what I asked them to yeah, do. What's yeah, wrong? What's wrong with you people? Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, but maybe that's just me. Anyway, um, oh, wait, I just found a link between synthetic data sets and science communication. Let's do it. Um, okay, uh, here's my very elegant transition. I hope I'm getting this right. You live 
you broadcast yourself writing this the primer, right? That's Was right. it that paper? That's oh, a, that's yes. the one. Sweet. So um I have to admit I haven't watched that yet. Although I, I will be I want to see you like kind of what, what you're doing there, what what that's like. You need to but, be sweating and sweating and swearing as I as I make all these errors. Sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> um but Kind of you've, I mean, you're doing quite a lot of science communication, right? And yeah. this is one example of it. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, for, I try to kind of, you know, before I kind of do these interviews, I look at like, what can I find about the guests? And I interview a lot of people who've, who have basically no online presence, um, at least that I can find. And, uh, for you, I found, you want me to read the list? Oh, no. <laughs> I found, <laughs> okay, then I'm going to do it. <laughs> I found Twitter three podcasts you've obviously been guests on other podcasts a youtube account a medium blog a separate blog called dsquintana.blog then your website dsquintana.com university website linkedin google scholar github researchgate frontiers loop instagram and lastly i'm subscribed to your newsletter for about the last year i think i've received one email <laughs> what's going on with your newsletter <laughs> I, I have been a little bit a little bit slack on the newsletter <laughs> But it was, a, I mean, it was a very long newsletter. <laughs> it seemed like, yeah, I was like, also because I think I hadn't received an email for like a few months, so I'd completely forgotten I subscribed. And so I was like, huh, Dan Quintana's emailing me, why that? And then I was like, oh, the newsletter, that's, <laughs> the newsletter, that's right. And then there was just a, <laughs> a wall of like, here's all the stuff I've published. But anyway, so kind of what's the, maybe as a kind of bigger picture behind like all of these things, right? Is there kind of like one... And not like a specific reason for why you do all of this, but yeah, I mean, this is a lot of work, right? I mean, I do one podcast and this is a lot of work um, and you do all this other stuff too. So kind of why? It's not as much work as you would think because a lot of the stuff that I do, I repurpose for different mediums. So for instance, what I might do is if I'm doing a presentation, I'll record that as a video. I'll record that as a YouTube video and then I'll post it on my YouTube and then I can strip the audio and post that as a podcast and then I can take the best bits and best ideas and turn that into a blog post. I can take photos during the presentation and post that on Twitter and on Instagram or on TikTok or whatever. And oh, you have TikTok. I didn't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's one thing that you missed. I thought, I thought that's what you were going to finish with. I, I think I also missed Facebook. I don't know if you have that. I don't have Facebook, so I, I do have a public-facing Facebook account. Um, that um, and look, the other the other thing is, people like reading information in different ways. I'm a podcast guy. I almost never use YouTube for for learning stuff. I would much rather learn about a thing via a blog post. But people like taking in information in different ways. That's why I've sort of spread myself across these different platforms. The time I spend, the place that I spend the most is is Twitter, because that gives you the most bang for your buck. Um, Facebook, I don't like because the way the algorithm is, you basically have to pay money in order to get yourself in front of people regularly. Unless they're already subscribed to your page, getting organic reach, which is basically reaching people without paying for advertising, is extremely difficult. Whereas getting that reach on Twitter is much easier in that it takes, it's, it's, it, all it takes is one person to see your tweet and to retweet it, and off it goes into the stratosphere. That stuff really happens on Facebook. So that's why I like Twitter in that respect. But look, all this stuff comes down to the fact that the way that academia works now is there's gatekeeping everywhere. There's gatekeeping in terms of you submitting your paper and getting it published in, um, in, in journals. 
when it comes to you talking about your research with traditional media outlets, whether it's TV, whether it's radio, whether it's the newspapers, there's a lot of gatekeeping going on, which can make it very difficult to get your work out there. If you're already famous, it's very easy. You have a new paper, you can call your contact the newspaper and away you go. If your mentor is famous, for instance, that can also really help. And if you can get very lucky in the peer review lottery and get a paper in that fancy journal, then a lot of people will start paying attention. But other than that, it's very difficult for an early career researcher to get themselves known otherwise. But with social media, you can get around that gatekeeping. If you have ideas that you want to put out there, you tr- tr- traditionally you would need to use traditional media or you would need to publish papers. But with social media, you can get around that. You can start blogging, you can start pre-printing, you can start talking about your ideas, and there is none of the gatekeeping that you do see with the, tr- with the traditional journals and the traditional media. And there's just uh, fantastic opportunities as well to learn new stuff. We, we spoke about before me relearning statistics in my postdoc. A lot of the stuff that I learned was from finding stuff on Twitter, was from asking questions on experts on Twitter. How do I do this thing? Even right, even- I found so much about open science on Twitter. I think for that is especially useful, yeah. It's hu- hugely, and hugely I useful. Don't, I hate Twitter. I don't really use it much. Like, <laughs> and I've still found so much yeah. about open science on it, yeah. Even like following certain accounts or asking questions, you can find a lot of stuff. And also all just for those connections that you get, you know, I have a young family. It's very difficult for me to travel overseas for, 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 for a long amount of time. Pre, you know, when I was um, without kids, it's very easy to sort of go to different conferences and meet people. And I also recognize that for a lot of people, they don't have the resources to be able to do that, to be able to travel. But with social media, with Twitter in particular, then you can get those opportunities for actually meeting new people and networking with new people. I've, I've lost count of the amount of papers, collaborations that are coming about because of Twitter, because of talking with people there, invitations for doing for doing talks that would never would have happened otherwise because people have heard the podcast, um, because people have seen me on Twitter talking about stuff. Hello, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and like, because we, we always see from all these conferences we go to, it's like, oh, that old white guy. It's like did did a keynote at the last three conferences. The reason people do that is that people are very risk averse when it comes to talking, when it comes to choosing their speakers, and they're like, well, I saw that guy speaking at the last one. Um, so one I invite for the next one. But if you have a podcast, if you have a voice within social media, then people can get familiar with you and then you can become the safe option and they can contact you going, hey, we want you to speak at this conference. And then things kind of snowball from there. So I like it because it is a great leveler in many respects and it levels the playing field, especially for early career researchers. And there's a lot of pushback from some senior academics going, oh, I don't like all this discussion on Twitter, all this critical discussion. Yeah, of course you don't like it because previously- (laughs) You couldn't get challenged. You write a letter to the editor, but the editor's your mate, and they're not going to publish the paper. But on Twitter, look, I'm not, I'm not going to say <laughs> there's a lot of problems. It's not this perfect paradise, and there's a lot of stuff that can go on there. Um, but at the same time, um, there is a lot of benefits when it comes to you know sharing your work, learning from other people, and and building those contacts. And personally, it's been great for for for, for my career. And it's it's just one we were speaking before about you know using R and as, as a new tool in your toolkit. I think social media should be something in every researcher's toolkit as a way to talk about their research, as a way to meet new people. It should be something that everyone um, everyone is taught because it's just a, it's such a fantastic resource, I think. Yeah. Again, I have a bunch of questions based on a few things you mentioned. Uh, first is, 
maybe a bit specific, but how do you ask a question on Twitter that gets lots of response? For example, I uh, created a Twitter account when I had my first, I don't know, like half a year ago, whatever. I think I have 20 followers. I think I'm, a, I think I'm an influencer now. I think I have 20 <laughs> followers on Twitter. Um, so if I post something with a question, well, I don't because I'm assuming no one's going to respond because there's only 20 people who can even see my tweets unless like someone with lots of followers happens to retweet it, but that's pretty unlikely. If you have a question about something, how do you ask that on Twitter if you don't already have a big audience? Uh, there's two ways. You can either tag experts. Of course, don't spam them. But if there's an expert in the area that you think can answer your question, uh, it, it's incredible. For me, if there's an academic that I know is active on Twitter and I want to ask them the question, I'll always contact them on Twitter rather than email them. Email n- n- Email is just associated with drudgery. Twitter usually is a bit more fun and these academics are much more faster to respond whether it's a public message or whether it's a private direct message i'll always use that as a way of, of contacting academics but uh so one way is tagging someone who might have that expertise other way is by using certain hashtags this doesn't always work but for instance i sort of ask does that work i don't know i've never looked for hashtags or anything so i find that for r stats for r if you use the rstats hashtag, there are some bots which tend to retweet that stuff and in- increase your reach. For me, uh, I've just seen it as well, with a lot of other people have had success with actually using the rstats hashtag, for instance. Some research communities have their own hashtags that can help. There's other ones, for instance, academic ch- academic chatter is a good one. So people who have, so within their PhDs, if they tag or hashtag academic chatter, then other people are sort of, looking at these questions i'm not going to pretend that your questions are always going to be answered if you're doing a thing a lot a lot of people <laughs> i once did uh, i was doing a, a, a twitter workshop um in germany so uh, where, where was it leipzig i think anyway and i'm like anyone who has less than 20 followers less than 50 followers and one person with their hand up i'm like we're going to ask a question we're going to use the right <laughs> hashtags and by the end by the end of this session you're going to get a lot of answers and i i did it we did it and he got no answers like it was, uh, <laughs> if it worked it would, have been, it would have been incredible so these things yeah. obviously don't always work so i think what, what would be more successful is to tag one or two experts in the area it sometimes happens to me people have meta-analysis questions and sometimes they get tagged sometimes i'm like i don't know and i'll retweet the question other times um look look if, if someone can answer your question within the space of a tweet this the, the likelihood of them answering you is very high right right yeah. so if it's literally um, one thing I like using Twitter for is if I'm working on different scientific figures, I'm like, okay, A or B, what do you think? And then people will just vote on that or they'll go, oh, A is good, but, um, you know, you should consider using different shading, for instance. So th- th- there's different ways that you can do this, but hashtags and direct tagging people are two ways that you can get your answers, your, your, your questions answered. Okay. Yeah. I mean, yeah, as you said, it's not about, there's no, there's no guarantee for any of this working, but I guess this maybe sounds very grim but i just don't think if i just retweet something there's going to be any response because you know as i said i have 20 followers like this you know that if i just do that basically ask a question there's there's just going to be a response but then with this there's at least a chance then yeah exactly yeah uh one thing i'd like to add to what you said earlier that this is this kind of getting yourself out there and sharing your ideas and that kind of stuff um, that that's particularly useful for early career researchers. Just to highlight, I think it's especially useful right now during the pandemic. I mean, I've, you know, you mentioned conferences. So far, two thirds of my PhD have been during a pandemic. Hmm. And basically, as soon as I had something that I could have shown, 
pandemic. <laughs> and um, there are, I guess, still like online stuff, uh, like online conferences or whatever. But yeah, I think especially like during this kind of thing when, um, I mean, this isn't specifically why I started the podcast. I mean, it's coincidence that it was around the time of the pandemic, but you know, I get to meet every other week on average, like someone new, like, you know, like you, for example, now who I wouldn't, I mean, maybe we would have met otherwise, um, because of, because of Kostov, but you know, many of my guests I would never have met otherwise. Yeah. I mean, I guess podcast is maybe asking quite a lot because that is a fair amount of work having some sort of podcast, but yeah, Twitter definitely seems like something that is doable. Hey, okay. So here's one question about Twitter just specifically, which is, Twitter's I find it annoying. <laughs> I'm not sure why. What's kind of the what's the mindset I could have to to start engaging more with it? I don't know. It feels to me still like an obligation. Mm. I guess it is an opportunity, but it still feels like you know, like it would be good to tweet more so I can have more following. So in case I have a you know, when I have a paper, <laughs> more people see it. But it doesn't really feel like something right now that I really enjoy doing. It's it's really what you make it. So and and you don't have to follow scientists as well. It's like like if there's other people um, within different spheres, you can follow them to make it more interesting. If there's something that you just can't stand hearing about, if you can't stand hearing about cryptocurrency, you can mute certain words. And tweets with those certain words will never pop up in your feed. So there are ways of tailoring the experience to make it fun. And look, for me, the moment doesn't become fun. I'll stop using it. Like it shouldn't feel like drudgery. Like I don't have it, so I'm like, I need to tweet today. It's just one of those things that I'm like, okay, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna share what I'm doing. I, I never think about um, have some sort of tweeting strategy, not at all. I'm just sharing what I'm doing. And if if someone is tweeting stuff I'm interested in, I just don't, I just stop following them, like or mute them. You know, there, there's there's no there's no hard feelings there. And I'm sure people unfollow me all the time, and that's fine. Like you know, it's just that's just that's just the way it is. But it should it should be fun. And um, one way to do that is just following the right accounts, I think, as well. And as soon as it stops becoming fun, I think about my use. I go through some periods where I delete it from my phone if I need to really oh, so you have, have it on your phone. Okay. Sorry. I was curious. Uh, you So you have it on your phone. I was yeah. curious whether I could- whether it's a use, it's whether it's a good idea to have Twitter well, on your phone. I mean, it's a bit, it's a bit more, it can be a bit more distracting. Um, but for me, I go through some periods where I delete it from my phone, and then I can only access access it on a, on a desktop, which means I'm I'm using it less. And um, you, that's you, what you, I have. Yeah, yeah I mean, you, you, it's 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 completely up to you as to as to how you use it. I I wrote a book called Twitter for Scientists. It's a free book, um, so I'm not sort of making any money from plugging it. And it goes through step by step how to use it. And one thing that I added to this book is a Twitter boot camp. It's a 30 day thing where I give prompts, suggestions of what people can tweet. Because sometimes people are just like, I just don't know what to talk about. Um, but within these prompts, um, you, um, you can actually go through. And every day there's two different options, and you can and you can try. It's just it's a way of sort of getting some getting some momentum there. Make a guess until what point I followed your book. <laughs> did you did you stop after the first chapter? No, no. I, until it got practical. Ah, oh, there we go. There <laughs> until we go. I actually had to do something. Cha- cha- chapter, chapter two, then. Yeah. Really? No, I, no. I think. No, know. I read everything. Basically, I, mean, I basically read the entire thing. But then, when um, it came to your your boot camp, I was like, oh, ah, okay. <laughs> that seems like work. You, you almost finished it. Almost. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah, right. So look, it, it should it should be it should be fun. Uh, other thing as well is like people. Are oh, so can I just add one thing to the, yeah. to your book? I think the. Uh, I mean whether you call it a book or not doesn't matter but i think uh 
it's it's quite short, right? It's not yes. like a book that you you know no. spend like five hours reading. It's no. like half an hour or something. Right? Yeah, like it's yeah, it's you could have called it like blog posts, basically. But it's all, it it started being a blog post, and then I realized there were so many sections that I converted into an ebook. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just so people know, like this is not like something you you know that's going to be a lot of work to read. No, no, like yeah, half an hour if that. Yeah. Uh, sorry, I interrupted you. Yeah. So what I was going to say is the good thing is there are different types of social media that you can use based on what you're interested in and what you like doing. Some people hate video. Some people love doing video. If that's the case, then yeah, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube. Um, some people prefer, such as yourself, podcasts. I, lo- I love podcasts. I think I think they're fantastic. And um, But other people just can't stand the sound of their own voice. So then maybe blogging is a bit, is a bit better for them. So there are different mediums and to that that you can use that's sort of better suited to, to to what you prefer yeah exactly i mean i think that's yeah that is one of the yeah really cool things like whatever you prefer doing there is a medium that probably only uses that specific way of communicating yeah. um and yeah i guess like even if you say like i like writing but i don't really have the time to write long posts more than use twitter or twitter's yeah 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 yeah, maybe um, to kind of maybe get a bit more toward podcasts. Um, I mean, you you mentioned uh, you you don't like hearing the sound of your own voice, uh, but as you, I mean, as you said in your blog post on starting a podcast or whatever, is there anyone who really likes listening to their voice in the no. beginning at least? I in mean, the beginning, it's... like you 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 learned at least for me, like I've learned to tolerate it. I'm like, okay, that's just that's just how I sound. That's just how. Yeah. It is. <laughs> yeah exactly. But at first, at first, it's always very jarring. Um, but I think, yeah, it's an experience that everyone has. Did you? How long did that take for you? Because I was so I have this real. I mean, I I found it so difficult in the beginning. Uh, in part, this kind of yeah, hearing your own voice and going, what? That's, that's what I sound like. <laughs> and secondly, also, I mean, what I just found difficult was this idea like this is final now. Hmm. Like this this episode is out there. Yeah, and this is the way I sound. But I was really surprised to find that it took me maybe. I mean, I don't know exactly when, but at least like after episode 10 or something like that. So mine are like, you know, on average, maybe like 70, 80 minutes long. So it's, you know, I listen to my voice a lot when I have to edit it. But around that time, I realized like, wait a minute, I'm not cringing anymore when I start speaking. <laughs> I'm not sure I got much better, but I'm not cringing at it anymore. How, how long did you take to kind of get used to it? Because since then, I've basically been like, whatever, I don't care. Yeah, about the same, about five or 10 episodes after that. I'm kind of like, yeah, this is just, this is how it is. This is what everyone experiences. And um, I just, yeah, now I'm just, I'm just misused to it. I've done a lot of editing. <laughs> yeah. I've edited myself. I can't even imagine how many hours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. See, you, you just, you just, you just, you just get used to it. Yeah. I mean, that is a really cool thing. I think this, um, yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, not liking listening to your own voice is one reason. Of course, there's many other reasons why podcasting might not be the right thing. I think, you know, as, you know, as I think most people are aware, it's probably easier if you're a native speaker. Um, oh yeah, yeah, it makes a huge difference. Just as I said that, I think I stumbled over the word native speaker. <laughs> but yeah, although for me it's it's bad because I, I I'm only half a native speaker basically because I spent most of my life in Germany, mm-hmm. and depending on who I'm talking to and who I spoke to before I started recording, the German can start to creep Okay. <laughs> although I think my English is strong enough that people just think I'm South African then. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> because you have this like weird Germanic British vibe, which then apparently sounds South African, but yeah, that's another thing that could be difficult. <laughs> but I quite like, I mean, a lot of people, you, you mentioned before this idea of it's, it's final, it's, it's, it's out there, but 
one of the reasons that I really like podcasts is it gives you the opportunity to get into some nuance. It's very difficult for people to take you out of context. Uh, it's very easy for people to take you out of context on Twitter, on for a blog post. It's a screenshot. Look at what this person said. We've done 145 episodes and only once out of all that time, after almost a million downloads, has someone gone to the trouble of capturing the audio from one thing that from one thing that we said were like <laughs> these guys are nasty. I, I, I think well, was it? Ah, we, we were talking about how somebody was disagreed with that there was that there was an error in the paper, but it was just it was maths, and I'm like, you, you can't argue with maths. Like two two plus two equals four, and we, we went and we were like, oh, this this the, the, it, it's maths, and we started laughing, and then they they took that as a way of us, you know, oh look 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 at these guys making making fun of papers type thing. But that was within a, that was kind of within a, a wider conversation of of people who were just you know disagreeing that the papers were wrong, but they were wrong, and yeah. One person's done that in that entire thing. Whereas with Twitter, it's very easy for people to take you out of context. When you're writing, it's very easy to do that. But with podcasts, you get that nuance and people- yeah, it's work to take someone out of context in a podcast, yeah. It takes a lot yeah, of really work. You really have and, to like- <laughs> Yeah, you have this to person, really this person worked. This person worked really hard to, to, to do that. So I like that. You can you can really talk about certain ideas and- um, I think it's, it's much easier in writing a blog post because with a blog post, um, I think people have people have a lot more grace when you're talking because conversation people have people know what conversations like and people know that conversations aren't perfect. People meander, they get to a point, they change ideas. You, you don't do that when you're writing. Or <laughs> well, you could start like that, but you should probably edit. Yeah, exactly. So there's the expectation to edit and have this polished, coherent piece. But with podcasting, in a lot of sense, you're thinking out loud. And people are totally okay with you thinking out loud and you even changing your mind in sentence. It's 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 totally fine. And in, in that respect, it takes, of course, editing takes a little, a little bit of time, but uh, I think it takes all things equal. I think it's much quicker and a much better use of time to podcast than just a blog. I do blog from time to time, especially when it's a more technical thing. But when it talks about me sharing, when, when I'm thinking about sharing my ideas, much better on a podcast, much easier. Yeah, it's true. Even if I say like editing takes a lot of time, it's like, well, editing, writing takes a lot of time oh, too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, actually com compared to that, it's not that much. Yeah, maybe as a, um, let's say, yeah, maybe there's, uh, there's some listeners who are interested in starting their own podcast. Before that, before we get to that, I have one question. So there's a there's a phrase that is everyone has their podcast these days. <laughs> Do you know anyone who has a podcast? Because I don't. <laughs> the very, only people I know have a podcast, I know through my podcast. Very, very few people. There is one person in our department and she does a psychiatry podcast, um, which is great. I think they have like an episode a month and they just talk about issues within psychiatry. It's um, it's Norwegian podcast. but And yeah, and there's people sort of loosely connected. And of course, but most of the people that I know with podcasts, I know via, via, via Twitter, for instance. Um, there are other podcasts that sort of do similar stuff than what we're doing with Everything Hurts when it comes to methodology and, and reproducibility um, as well within sort of my, my workplace is just maybe, yeah, just like one person. I keep telling people this is a, this is a great opportunity to, to do all this <laughs> yeah. kind of stuff. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's not everyone's cup of tea. I wish more people did it though. Like honestly, yeah, yeah, um, exactly. whenever I hear new podcast, new science podcast, I'm like, yes, let, let's, let's, grow, let's grow this community. I'm a bit biased because I love podcasts myself. Like when I'm commuting, when I'm taking the baby for a walk, um, one hit, one headphone in, and that's how I can keep on top of things. And 
um, you hear some really interesting stuff. <laughs> the baby's crying, two headphones in. Yeah, two headphones. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so actually, just out of curiosity, who who do you like listening to, or who has what are some kind of podcast that you really enjoy? Uh, I enjoy uh, quantity. Other than your own, <laughs> <laughs> I listen, to, it, I listen yeah. to it far too much in the edits. Um, I'm really, I'm really enjoying um, uh, Quantitude. What's that about? Um, so that's uh, quantitative statistics. Um, the the hosts the hosts are fantastic, and that's got a really good um, production value. Like they they spend a lot of time. It sounds corny, but like sound effects and like if they, if if they like reference a movie, they'll actually take the clip, the audio, like a five second audio clip from the movie. Really, really cool stuff. Very highly produced, highly polished, and very, very knowledgeable guys. I think the first podcast that I really got into for science podcasts was, was Very Bad Wizards, um, which is sort of psychology. Sorry, what about Wizards? Very, very bad wizards. Oh, very bad wizards. Okay. Yes. Um, it's a mixture of sort of psychology and philosophy. And these are two guys um, that are just two mates who are talking. And I've been listening to them for a very long time. And I realized that I do the same thing with James, who was well, before we started the podcast, because he, he went to Boston, I went to Oslo, and we just kept talking, whether it was over Slack, over email, um, or just or just a Skype talk. And I'm like, we're, we're already doing what they're doing on very bad wizards let's just let's just record this and that's how that's how it really started um i like other sort of more science ones like ologies it's just a cool sort of science podcast um what are the ones i'm listening to uh, i listen to a lot. i'm a bit of a mac nerd i listen to a few apple podcasts like about apple products or yeah 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 like so, okay so, so, software and hardware yeah that is um, nerdy <laughs> that's 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 extremely nerdy um uh so yeah that's usually the uh, I, I like the um, Ezra Klein podcast as well. The old. Well, I've heard about that, but what exactly is that? I've heard the name, but I don't know what it is. Politics, sort of current affairs type stuff. Um, so yeah, but the, 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 those are the main ones. But actually, yeah, I just realized. So I, I've had this is now the second episode that I'm talking to someone who has a podcast, also about podcasting. The other is with Cody Commerce, who has the Cognitive Revolutions podcast, or oh, Revolution, I guess it's one. I think he actually also mentioned Ezra Klein's. Yeah. So I think now 100% of the people oh, <laughs> great. say they like that one. Maybe I should actually check it out. Check, check it out. Just in- interesting people. Um, he's The way that he asks questions is, is, is very interesting. I also like history podcasts as well. Um, there's there's one, uh, each episode is like three hours long. So the hardcore history. Hardcore history. That's the one. Yes. Yeah, I don't know. I'm slightly confused because I've looked for it and they're on like, on, on Apple Podcasts, there's only a few episodes or something available. I think it, maybe it's a, it's a thing where you, where you have to subscribe to get the older ones, but possibly. Okay, but that was even before Apple had. Oh, I'm, the, not, I'm not sure. This that's like payment method that's like half a year old or something, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I listened to one of them, but yeah, it's just so long. <laughs> I, I love it. Like on, when I'm on hol- lying on the beach on holiday. I'm like, Listening I'm going to learn about something. the fall of Rome, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah, exactly. it's, it's, and the way it's dramatized. Anyway, if you're into, like, I, I, yeah, I'm yeah. sort of loosely interested in history. So that, that, that's a very okay, good one. Okay. Yeah, that's cool. Um, actually, I have a, so one question I have is about, you can be as specific as you want to, but if you don't want to share the specifics, you know, you don't have to, about kind of, for example, like the size of everything hurts and how it kind of grew over time and that kind of stuff. I mean, like, you know, you mentioned now, you said almost a million downloads. And I checked, there's this, I don't know how accurate this is, but there's this website called Listen Notes. It's just a website with lots of podcasts. And it's. I think it's basically 
like a directory of podcasts where you can listen to podcasts, something like that. They also have rankings, or not rankings exactly, but let's say kind of the top X percent the popular podcasts are. And apparently everything hurts in the top 1.5% podcasts. On the That's website. a surprise. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. And so the thing is, I uh, I know that Buzzsprout, the company I use for um, uh, my hosting, they have stats about the, all the podcasts that they publish and what the downloads they get. And I think the top 1% get like 3,000 downloads in the first week or something like that. So just based on that, it seems like you're getting quite a lot of downloads per episode right by now. We, we get about... I'd say about sort of five to 10,000 a week, but 10,000 is in total, like across all episodes, across all episodes. Yeah. Um, a given episode within the first week would be sort of around four to 5,000. Yeah, um, okay. oh, pretty good estimate then. Yeah. This, like, we, we started off very, very slow. <laughs> we started off as a psychophysiology podcast because that's what we both did. And then, um, we realized there's about like 10 people in the world interested in what we do. So then <laughs> yeah. as soon as we started doing more episodes around research methods and, and life as another career researcher, that's, that's when a lot of interest sort of kicked up. But, um, yeah, I mean, look, I, th- I think things really started kicking off around sort of episode 50 and then it sort of rises and rises from there. And, uh, do you know things- why? Just because that's also rough. I mean, I was a bit later than that from listening to yours, but yeah. uh, I, I don't know. I think you know it takes time for 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 mo- momentum to start uh, or for momentum to gather. Also, I think we began to hit our stride a little bit more, became a little bit more confident with what we were doing. The sort of format that we do kind of crystallized a bit more by then, and we also started getting guests around episode fifty. I think it, it was around then. Uh, and of course, you know, guest episodes tend to have um, increased downloads typically. Not always, but typically they, they tend to have increased downloads. And um, yeah, so then I think even since then, like it sort of really increased around episode 50 and then it's just slowly, slowly increases. So we, we don't we haven't seen that kind of explosion that we saw around then. But, um, you know, we, we still can continue at that rate of about sort of 10,000 or so downloads a week. And um, new episodes sort of get sort of anywhere from sort of like five to five to eight thousand downloads from um, yeah. So it's 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 cool. It's really encouraging to see. We get some like really nice emails from people. Um, um, right, yeah, it's it's really cool. Like it's I don't know. We we never expected that we'd sort of get past ten episodes. We kind of said to ourselves, let's just try for ten and and see where it goes. And um, yeah, I think we're four four years in episode one hundred and I'm I'm just editing. I think one forty six or one forty seven. At the moment, and um, it's 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 been it's been it's been a great ride. I mean, do you do you sometimes just you know the classic like you know sit down and go like, hang on, five thousand people are going to listen to us in the first week? Yeah, it, it's still. I mean, look, <laughs> like look, that's uh, you know just you know the classic like that's a that's a big theater, right? It's 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 pretty it's more like stadium size almost now. Five thousand. Like, but I mean, look, look, that, that that's the amount of people who were downloading it to their device we, we don't know <laughs> so it's like five people it could be i mean because a lot of people just it just it's just an, you know it just kind of happens and then they, they never actually um yeah, yeah. listen to the thing um that's also it's a, that's a blessing and a curse of podcast is the metrics are very weak we only know how many d- devices are being downloaded to where they're located and the type of devices which is very good um there are some companies that are really trying to monetize podcasts and by doing that they're trying to force you to use a podcast app because the podcast app is getting information and basically telling the creators you you lost attention at minute five be edgier 
and it's, it's just it's changing podcasts you know for, for, for the worse the the fact that the metrics are very broad i think is very good because it's meaning people are just making what they want to make once you have too many metrics and people are sort of not like with youtube for instance if you look at the metrics you can see at what point of the video people people started logging off and then people start tweaking their thing and becoming more you know doing crazier stuff in order to keep attention but with podcasts it's it's staying yeah. it's staying pure so to speak because those metrics are not oh, I, sorry yeah. go on yeah yeah the, the, the metrics aren't influencing people yeah i think i mean one thing that i've heard is that and that seems to be roughly true also for my episodes is that Podcasts do have really high retention rates, though, over time, um, relative. Especially, I think, you know, if you look at YouTube's graphs, apparently it's pretty much exponential, like, fall off in the first 10 seconds or oh, whatever. Yeah. Because Every most people realize, oh, I guess you have a YouTube channel. Yeah, you, you probably know this much better than me. Um, but for podcasts, it's, I think, much more stable. And I don't know, have you looked at the Spotify stuff? Because Spotify gives, through Buzzsprout, I can, um, they do this fairly automatically where I can look at the stats. It's just... In the first three episodes, it seemed to me to be pretty correct, where you saw like nuanced like changes over time. But somehow for me, over the last few episodes, it's been like, you know, it says like, I have X amount of listeners and all of them, you know, have this, you know, like listen to the entire thing or list, you know, whatever, like 70%. Yeah, it's just, it doesn't look like real data basically anymore. I haven't looked um, closely at the stats. I think maybe f- 5% of our listeners listen via Spotify. Five to ten percent, maybe. Oh, really? I have a, quite a lot, actually. Okay. I think. I mean, yeah, because we we kind of we don't sort of promote it heavily. We kind of say, hey, it's, hey, it's an option. But because um, a lot of our people began listening to us because they subscribe through their through their apps that they already have. Um, maybe more, maybe more recent listeners are, are going through Spotify. Um, but I haven't actually looked closely at the data there to see uh, to see when are we when are we losing our listeners? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I wonder because sometimes I think one thing that is a bit annoying about podcasting is that you really lack the kind of infrastructure that you have for videos through YouTube. And, you know, sometimes I think YouTube is amazing because you get stats. You know, like, let's say you do the same thing every time and you think it's cool and everyone hates it. Maybe you should keep it in because you think it's cool, but but maybe you should take it out because it yeah. sucks, you know. And um, I guess if you get no feedback, you never know. But And also the fact that, you know, with podcasting, you don't really get even proper numbers about anything because you know some people listen through that app some through that some through this some through that right sometimes i do wish like can't someone please make like a proper youtube for podcasts but yeah i guess it does have downsides too mm-hmm. one question i have about yeah i mean so finances is something i don't really need to be thinking about much with my podcast in terms of sponsorship page and whatever I just don't have the download numbers right now for that to make sense, I don't think. But I'm just curious how you kind of think about that topic. Um, I think you mentioned in your blog post you started using Patreon from episode 75 onwards mm-hmm. or something like that. Yeah, how's kind of your experience been with Patreon and kind of monetizing the podcast? I mean, yours is maybe to say upfront, what's the word? Uh, that you don't make non-profit basically, right? Yeah, so all, 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 the, all the money goes back in to to the podcast mine, is, um, <laughs> mine would be non-profit in the very technical <laughs> sense but or well non-profit i guess if it costs me every month that's also not profit not profit um, yeah but yeah so how, how kind of do you think about starting to get some money from listeners through this or through advertising and and maybe also um if you are willing to slash can talk about this some of your sponsors you've had how did that happen did you contact them or vice versa or yeah how does that work I think we've had 
four different sponsors and all of them contacted us. I think because people within their companies listen to the show and they're like, this these are, this is the sort of audience that we want to get to. So they, they got in touch with us. But I think out of 140 episodes, I think maybe 20 have been sponsored episodes, so to speak. Oh, really? That? Okay. Some I thought it was, okay. I thought it was more, but okay. No. So, um, yeah, we haven't had that many. So maybe 20 or 30. And, and for us, getting those sponsors is, is a bonus, which means that we're very picky about who we actually choose. Sorry, the, the sponsors are Sight. Wait, then you've had Prolific, right? Prolific, Sight, uh, Paper Pile, um, and I know, I'm another nice. very important sponsor I know, that, I you, know that you value dearly. Oh, no. <laughs> Dan, I'm giving you so much. Come on, <laughs> I can't say much more about how much you love that sponsor. Our, our, our current sponsor is Sight. Um, so <laughs> yeah. Sight okay, let's. Yeah, Sight, Sight, Paper Pile, um, Prolific, and. Um, another one which, <laughs> which 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 we've had um but look so so we have that and then we also have our um patrons i think we waited a very long time until we actually asked people and i think what a lot of people forget is that some people really want to support the show and there's no way for them to do that typically other than from sort of talking about the, 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 show, the show on social media tweeting about it at best yeah yeah and once you actually give that opportunity you'll be surprised how people want to just go, hey, I'll, I'll, I'll really enjoy what you're doing and I want to give a little bit back. And that's been really good. And what we do is we release two episodes a month and those are always free. They're typically from sort of 45 minutes to a bit over an hour. And as a bonus to our patrons, then we do a bonus episode, which is like 10 minutes. And that's what we sort of release. We also have like discounts on our merch. We, we, we do have merchandise, um, make very little money off that <laughs> i thought you said at one point that that's basically zero it's basically zero yeah so it's literally like 10 percent, five percent and for, for for our for our patrons it's essentially free but we just have it there because some people were like hey do, do you have t-shirts or mugs and it costs us nothing so do people actually use merchandise i always find it really weird when people want like t-shirts i don't know i mean yeah. i guess i'm not someone who like i guess you're wearing a nasa t-shirt right now if i could tell that correctly yeah, yeah. so maybe i'm just the wrong person for this but i never i never get the whole like i want to own something in my house people, people do it the... yeah people do it so i think our, our most popular things that we sell um uh, are shirts hoodies and mugs those are the things that um you know people just people want people want to support the show i think that's great but yeah so all, all the money that we make goes back in um it goes for for equipment be it hardware and and software um sort of you know it's just you can do podcasts on the cheap or essentially free, but having some software makes it a bit quicker <laughs> doing doing it that way. So it's been nice, but it's also good that just to give listeners a, a, a way just to show their appreciation for for what we're doing on the show. And um, yeah, Patreon's been great, and it's just it's another way for people to contact us because there's sort of like there's like contact within 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 the Patreon app. But yeah, look, I'm I'm very glad that we waited until until episode seventy, and I, I think maybe two-thirds of our patrons based that we have now we've been doing it for about two years now two-thirds signed up within within the first week these were the these were the hardcore fans oh, really? that have been okay, listening that's, that's cool though right yeah I mean, it's, it's really great cool. to- like that that initial like we we, we we had no idea whether people would actually we're thinking maybe we'll get maybe we'll get 10 people and maybe we'll just be able to cover the hosting costs and we'll just be able to cover getting getting new microphones and, and then that and that's it but we're, we're pleasantly surprised and um yeah, like we, we, we still get new people 
that sort of come on board, but the majority of our patrons were from the very beginning because we had sort of, we built 70 episodes of, of, of goodwill, so to speak. And as soon as you said, hey, we're doing this thing, you can get bonus episodes, bonus episodes and you can support the show, then it just happened. So it's, it's, really, it's really nice to see. But so what do you do with that money? I mean, the, I mean, I get like, you know, I obviously know that podcasting costs money, but I think it says, I just checked, was it $345 a month or something? Yeah. So I mean, assuming you're not actually getting that, right? That's probably before Patreon takes their cut. Yeah. So Patreon um, takes their cut. Um, which is because, what, 30% or something? It's quite uh, high. Or, or not that high. Less? I think it's 15 uh, okay. or something. Um, but uh, look, this, this, I have to, I have to um, count this as income. So I have to put aside a lot of that for tax as well. Oh, you can't do that like separately. You have to do it as for you personally, kind of. Or yes, I mean, I mean, I, I could have set up a separate thing, but it was just it's too much of a pain. So this is regardless. It is. <laughs> so we're funding like Norwegian roads or whatever. No, seriously, I have to. Like it, it is. Like <laughs> yeah. it has. It has to be. It has to be treated as as, as income. Um. So there's just um setting setting up a non-profit within norway it's just it's not suited for a podcast <laughs> let, 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 let's just say that so yeah so patron tax cut then obviously i have to put put stuff aside for for paying tax um but then yeah so the, these things hosting the podcast hosting the website paying for stuff um we we use um melon as a service occasionally for for speaking with guests that costs money the hardware, the, the microphones, and all, all the stuff associated with that. Okay, I mean, that, to be fair, just the fact that you have to tax that makes a big difference. So, some yeah. I assumed you'd. Uh, I hadn't really thought about this too clearly, but I, I just assumed like, okay, you're getting like I don't know, two hundred fifty to three hundred of that dollars plus whatever your sponsors make per episode uh, per, per month. But I guess if you if you're taxing that amount, then yeah. Then suddenly it becomes a lot more clear what yeah what you're doing with that money yeah 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 it's um it, it's 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 one of those things like you, you can't really I can't really argue it's a hobby it's 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 you know money's coming in every every month but um yeah so it's it's equipment and and hosting costs um you know what one thing we want to do is um we're now at the point where we can start sending out microphones to guests as well i was gonna ask are you doing that or no we want we want to start doing that now because now now we're at the point where we can sort of you know even after tax and all that kind of stuff um looking at the numbers it's something that we can that we can start doing um at least sort of something on the cheaper side but it's much better than than doing a laptop microphone i guess the good thing is also that you know i have at basically two episode uh, two interviews a month um on average but i guess you don't do interviews every time right so that no, also makes so it maybe, much more manageable for yeah. you to actually do that almost all the time yeah yeah um so i think that's something that can that can really help but um but but also you know the the, the software so i use um getting a little bit technical into the weeds i use isotope sure. to do um to do my editing and it's, it's just it's it's fantastic it's it's heavily automated uh it's not cheap but it's um it just means i can spend less time doing editing for instance yeah, yeah, yeah. i was actually gonna ask like one uh, um, not necessarily like feel free to mention like specific things you use because that's i think very useful i mean just to clarify i use audacity still and you can unless you're doing something like if you want to do like super cool edited stuff then maybe something more complicated but for something like this audacity does pretty much everything you need but it's just a lot of labor intensive but i was curious do you still edit your podcast yourself? Then I was—I yes. guess I assumed you had also more income through Patreon than you do. But um, why? I'm just curious because I guess at some point you—I'm assuming you have—you could you and James could put somebody personally aside to do this, and then you don't have to—you have more time, basically, right? Um, 
I don't know. I, I, I still like having that control. We don't do much editing at all. So we, we don't, we hardly cut anything out, but I still like doing that. And I'm the one that's writing the summaries as well. And re-listening to it and editing, it helps me write. You listen through the entire thing or? Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, so then, and then, you know, it means that I can listen through and I, we, we talk about a thing. I'm like, oh, I have to actually get the link for that too. So I like having that sort of reminder about what what we spoke about because sometimes it might be like a week or two from between we actually do the recording from when i actually do the editing as well so it's good to um it's good to re-listen to 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 these things um so i mean you know even if we had a lot more money then i I still think i do the editing myself just because yeah um just just so i can sort of re-listen to the episode um but also if if there is a bit a bit that we do cut out even though we don't do it that much at least i know and have that full control like yep that that that's going to be the bit okay it's interesting just because i mean i guess i also do a weekly podcast and my episodes are longer so that just i I just spend so much time editing (laughs) like at some point i'm just getting fed up with it yeah but I've, i've really considered you know because i have the same thing that i um, you know, I guess hours a day was one of the least technical episodes I've almost done. But often I'll, you know, I, I have some episodes where I have like 20 references in the list or something because we talked about, you know, mentioned so many papers and whatever. And obviously, pretty much I have to do that. And, but there's some episodes where I have like book discussions or something where someone else could do it. And I'm, I'm already, I might do this from like next year on basically. So like, <laughs> someone please help me I'll yeah i mean you. and you can you can, you can totally do that but yeah. i mean i think um right now it's not too much of a time in position because because we don't because i don't do too much editing um i very rarely take out pauses for instance or if, if there's a bit of the episode if it sounds a bit awkward we keep it in because it's real that, that's what conversations are like and we always want to give that impression of this is what a conversation sounds like so it doesn't take super long because a lot of this because you know fortunately we do have patrons so i can pay for software that can automate a lot of the stuff which comes to 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 fixing a lot a lot of the audio and i save a lot of time in that way so i'm very fortunate that we do have the patrons so i, I can actually automate a lot of that stuff yeah i guess maybe uh, as a kind of last point about editing for anyone who's interested in doing the podcast their own i, I think i will say that one of the time consuming aspects of my job in that sense is that I have a new guest every other week at least, which means I have no idea what audio is going to happen that week. Um, <laughs> you know, I guess if you and James are doing an episode between you, or if I'm doing a book club with a friend, I know what the audio is going to be like. But I've had some episodes where I spent like eight hours editing the thing because there was like sounds that were so like irregular and annoying and like yeah. I just couldn't figure makes out how to do difference. it. Yeah, I guess that, yeah, that probably makes a huge, because those are the ones that kill me, like a two hour interview. And oh, yeah. the sound is awful, and I <laughs> didn't take a lot. Yeah, I mean, we, we're yeah. the same thing. Like so, some guests um, don't have the equipment, and that's that's totally reasonable. But yeah, exactly. It I mean, it just takes a little bit of extra time to do that. Those ones take extra time, but because I'd say three quarters of the episodes are just James and I, then right, right. the the edits are a lot uh, the edits are a lot quicker. Right. Okay, cool.